1: In London, this is The Economist. I'm Christopher Lockwood, by day the Europe editor, but temporarily entrusted with the keys to the radio kitchen to bring you Tasting Menu, our weekly highlights programme. And on today's menu, in the world ahead, we get a taste for the future of food. Just watch out for the legs. There's a new superhero in town in Money Talks, and from the print edition, Britain Divides, over whose face should grace the new £50 note. But we start, as is only right, with our cover story. Politicians in most rich countries dream of rising incomes, low public debt and affordable welfare state and broad political consensus. But in one country, this dream is a proud reality. Behold Australia. Australia.
2: Its economy is arguably the most successful in the rich world. It has been growing for 27 years without a recession, a record for a developed country. Its cumulative growth over that period is almost three times what Germany has managed. The median income has risen four times faster than in America. Public debt at 41% of GDP is less than half Britain's. So, what's the secret? Australia is blessed with lots of iron ore and natural gas and is relatively close to China, which hoovers up such things. But sound policy-making has helped too. Even more remarkable is Australia's enthusiasm for immigration. Both main parties argue that admitting lots of skilled migrants is essential to the health of the economy.
1: We cautioned that the land down under is not without its flaws.
2: As welcoming as Australia is to immigrants arriving through normal channels, it treats those who try to come by boat, without the proper paperwork, with unnecessary severity. Aboriginal Australians suffer from enormous disadvantages, which a succession of governments has barely dented. Global warming is clearly causing grave damage. Yet Australia has done almost nothing to curb its emissions of greenhouse gases. But its political system promotes constructive government. All eligible citizens must vote by law, and those who might not bother to turn out otherwise tend to plump for mainstream parties. There is no need to rally supporters to the polls by pandering to their prejudices. Since everyone has to show up, politicians focus instead on winning over the wavering middle.
1: Unlike in America and much of Europe.
2: The irony is that just as the benefits of this set are becoming so obvious, Australians appear to be growing disenchanted with it. The rest of the world could learn a lot from Australia, and Australians could do with a refresher course too.
1: To find out how the rest of the world can learn to play by Aussie rules, read the special report in this week's Economist. And if you haven't already, subscribe. Go to economist.com radiooffer to get 12 issues for just $12 or £12. What does it mean to be educated? Our latest guest on The Economist Ask podcast was Tara Westover, author of the best-selling memoir, Educated. Raised on an isolated Idaho farm by parents with apocalyptic beliefs, she didn't go to school until she was 17, but now holds a PhD in intellectual history. She told us why she chose to leave her old life behind.
0: When I was around eight years old, my brother Tyler played me some opera music. It was the first time I'd ever heard it. And the second that I heard an aria, I just understood that that t- style of singing was not something that you just knew how to do naturally. You had to go somewhere and learn that. And I understood the university as being that place. And so I don't think it's a stretch to say that I taught myself algebra because I love to sing. My love of music took me to Brigham Young University. That's where I discovered history. That's where I discovered philosophy. That would take me to Cambridge. When I was at Cambridge, I would discover language. I would eventually write this book. And all of that, I think, sprang, strangely enough, from just a love of song. And that's nowhere near where I ended up.
1: Well, what could mainstream schools learn from Tara's unorthodox education? Listen to The Economist Asks on your podcast app. It's published every Thursday. Two billion people around the world regularly eat insects. They are in many ways the ideal foodstuff. They're high in protein, cheap to rear, plentiful in type and number, and relatively kind to the environment. As the global population continues to grow, the rest of us might need to come around to the idea of a bowl full of bugs. In the latest episode of our future-gazing series, The World Ahead, Hal Hodson and Tom Standage went down to Lau Cafe in London, for a taste of the future.
0: Mmm, this is really good. Because this, um, so I've got this sort of salad here, and it's got spring onion, yeah. bit of chilli, mm. um, yeah. a bit of red onion,
3: yeah.
0: and then it's got these bugs and peanuts. And so you've mm. got this lovely mixture of um, of crunchiness, mm. and then the uh, the freshness and the spiciness of the chilli. It's, uh, it's a really good combination. I'm guessing, I haven't tried yours yet, Tom, but I'm guessing mine is a little bit heavier. Mine has a kind of meatier, umami kind of a taste. But with the spicy and the Sorry, and there's an insect leg, which is fine.
3: So normally <laughs> Just we eat normal. that with rice. Just normal, it's like a fish rice. bone. You... We eat that with rice. The, the legs? Everything.
0: Everything, okay. Yeah. Oh, normally this would have some rice. Yes. Oh, I
1: okay, see, okay. And you can hear more about the future of food in The World Ahead with more episodes coming soon. The reality is, however, that many societies are not giving up on fresh meat anytime soon. A piece in this week's business section of the paper turned to China, where tech giants are moving into a new field.
4: The sleek offices of NetEase in Hongzhou seem an unlikely place to find a farmer. Yet the video gaming company also runs a pig-rearing division. Ni Jinda launched Wei Yang, its swine affiliate, almost a decade ago. Mr Ni oversees the rearing and slaughter of 20,000 organic free-range hogs a year with the aid of tracking sensors, big data analysis and soothing music. A second farm to open in December will raise another 150000
1: Technology is revolutionising what has long been a family business in China.
4: JD.com, an e-commerce firm that is an investor in Weiyang, raises and sells jogging chickens that each take one million steps before the chop, making the meat more succulent than that of sedentary fowl. In June, the cloud computing arm of Alibaba, an internet company based in Hongzhou, unveiled an agricultural brain that helps farmers monitor pigs in real time through visual and voice recognition, powered by artificial intelligence.
1: And now international firms want to get their snouts into the trough too.
4: DSM, a Dutch supplier of feed, has launched an app through which Chinese farmers and suppliers can place orders, track inventories... And monitor feed quantities, as well as check pork prices. The app will eventually offer live streaming and facial recognition tools, which could detect the features of a porker's face and identify its genetic makeup.
1: Well, that's one way to save on bacon. Less flashy solutions were the subject of our Money Talks podcast. Enter Captain Sensible, otherwise known as Henry Carr, our economics editor.
4: I'm here in the City of London. We're standing by a pothole and a sign warning of some maintenance to come. And indeed, maintenance spending on infrastructure is the first boring, sensible recommendation that we have in this week's Economist. It's not something governments are very good at doing. Politicians prefer a fancy new bridge, or flamboyant new project that they can put their name on. But countries typically, as a result, spend too little on maintenance.
1: Listen to Money Talks for Captain Sensible's mundane solutions for dramatic economic gains. This week's science and technology section revived an old dilemma, the
0: trolley problem. A trolley, or a train, is speeding down a track towards a junction. Some moustache-twirling evildoer has tied five people to the track ahead and another person to the branch line. You are standing next to a lever that controls the junction. Do nothing and the five people will be killed. Pull the lever and only one person dies. What is the ethical course of action?
1: This quandary used to only concern the world's small population of professional ethicists. But with the advent of self driving cars, this kind of decision making becomes a matter of life and death. To solve it, a team of psychologists and computer scientists at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology created the moral machine.
0: In the end, It gathered nearly 40 million decisions made by people from 233 countries, territories or statelets. The strongest preferences were for saving human lives over animal ones, preferring to save many rather than few and prioritising children over the old. There were weaker preferences for saving women over men, pedestrians over passengers in the car and for taking action rather than doing nothing.
1: And for the international traveller, there's a complicating factor.
0: Preferences differed between countries. The preference for saving women, for instance, was stronger in places with higher levels of gender equality. Self-driving cars, it seems, may need the ability to download new moralities when they cross national borders. And finally, in
1: this week's Britain section, the Bank of England found itself under fire over an apparently impossible decision of its own who to put on the new £50 note. Does it really matter?
3: With the exception of crooks, the only group that uses £50 notes in any number is tourists, so the sensible thing may be to choose an ambassador, easily recognisable by visitors. William Shakespeare, perhaps, or since the Bard used to feature on the £20 note, maybe Pepper Pig.
1: But since British passions have been aroused by a note that few of us ever use, why not
3: simply produce more? An eighty four pound note could feature George Orwell. A series of sixties could depict the Beatles. A note worth nine and three quarter pounds might show Harry, Hermione, and Ron. Postal authorities throughout the world produce novelty stamps. Central banks may as well follow suit.
1: They could even turn it into a minor money spinner.
3: The European Central Bank allows the production of zero euro notes as novelty items. In April, the city of Trier produced such a note featuring its most famous son, Karl Marx. It cost three euros. A
1: nice little bit of creative accounting. Well, that's the final bite of this week's tasting menu. But there's more where that came from at economist.com or on your podcast app. And while you're in there, leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Christopher Lockwood, and in London, this is The Economist.